Good afternoon. My name is Colleen. I'm a grateful member of Al-Anon and an alcoholic. Hi, everybody. Oh, so this morning I started my day and I, and I went for a run down on the down the river path on the other side of the bridge, so to speak. And, and I got to the very end of the run on that direction end of it. And, and I was at a marina and I, um, I looked out in the water and I, I saw that there were these two man and woman made cove arms, if you will, around this marina. And, you know, and I'm standing there, I'm looking out there and I'm thinking, this is exactly the two programs that wrap themselves around me on a regular basis, you know. Um, they're made by people. They're to create a safe harbor for these boats. This is where those boats get well physically. Uh, it's where they make sure their motors are running properly. It's where they get loved. It's where people congregate. It's where they trade stories and tips and lessons. And I thought, this is just, you know, this, this program is like a big marina for me, you know. It's very symbolic. It's a nice way to start the day. Um, so just to kind of give you a quick background on how I'm eligible for both programs, um, I, uh, I was born just like Rich to, among a woman who was 17 years old and I was the product of a party and, um, somewhat of a, a one night stand. And, uh, while my mother was carrying me, there was a lot of feuding and at the time my uh, my grandmother was an addict, a uh, prescription pill addict, and my biological father, who I don't know today still, uh, was quite the partier, so I can only imagine that maybe his parents were codependents as well. His parents would call my grandparents at three in the morning and say, you can't have this child, you know, you're going to have to abort her, you're not going to put our name through the mud like this. And my mother's parents would say, no, we're going to have this child. And to this day, I'm not quite sure whose decision it was that I was here, but I'm pretty sure it was a plan greater than all of us. So um, I had a lot of what I needed growing up. There's no doubt about it. I had a lot of love, um, good schooling, good upbringing. I grew up in a family business, and it was a hardware store. And um, behind closed doors, you wouldn't know what's going on, but to the general public, you know, our family did a lot of service, we helped a lot of unfortunate people in the area. We did not judge a book by its cover. Any religion, race, physical capability or lack thereof uh, that would come in the door, they would all get treated the same. But behind those doors, everybody in the family was treated very differently depending on the dynamic. And um, when I was five years old, one morning, I got into uh, the medicine cabinet, and I got a hold of a caplet, one of my grandmother's caplets, and I remember the colorful balls inside the caplet. They looked like those candies that would fill those clear straws with the ornaments on top. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to go ahead and try a bunch of those. Well, I had much too many. And my grandparents were at church at that time, and I went to my mother's bed, and I assume on a Sunday morning she may have been a little bit out of it, but uh, my eyes were rolled back in my head, and they had to rush me off to the hospital. And they pumped my stomach, and when I was kind of coming to, apparently I was very raged out. I was very angry. I was cussing. I didn't want anybody near me. I was five years old. And my mother looked at my grandfather and said, Dad, she's acting just like Mom. And that's when my grandfather knew that my grandmother had a problem, and he took all the prescriptions out of the house, 
and then she became a rageaholic. I remember as a kid growing up uh, that she would get into these phases of what we would call freaking out, and the cabinets would be slamming, and the cursing would be going on, and nothing was right, and I would hide, you know, or I would try and fix it. I would try and be the buffer. Um, I definitely was raised in such a way that I presumed to feel that I was in charge of how other people feel. And um, and this went on. And the dynamics of my family were that my grandmother my mother did not get along, but my grandmother and I very much so did. Um, if I didn't get my needs met from my mother, I would go to my grandmother. I called my grandmother mom. And... Um, my grandfather was a heavy drinker, but I don't think he was an alcoholic because his mood didn't change. You know, I don't remember him changing his mood after a couple. I don't remember him drinking at odd times. He would wake up and get to go to work every day. And um, so I think he was just a heavy drinker, and that's one of the few that I've ever known in my time, really. Um, but he was a codependent, you know, and it was like walking on eggshells. I remember times when my grandmother would be stomping upstairs and our store was downstairs, and he would have to come upstairs just to calm her down sometimes because the, the customers could hear, perhaps, downstairs. And um, so, again, I, I was, I was uh, as a kid, I always worked so hard to get people to like me. All the behaviors of, I would steal things as a kid. Um, I didn't know how to ride a bike by the time I was nine, so I took Alicia's bike down the street and I stole it so I could learn how to ride a bike so that I could ride my bike with my friends who could all ride bikes. Uh, I remember when I, would, when I would steal things, it wasn't to fill a void for myself, but I thought it would impress the people who knew me, my peers. And, um, and I would go to any length. I even I embarrassed a girl in grade school. Her name is Katie Hodge. If anybody knows Katie Hodge, please see me after this meeting. Um, but one day in grade school, we were all kind of joking, this little clique of us, that it'd be fun to embarrass her. And I remember thinking to myself, I can get them all to like me if I carry out this action of embarrassing her. And so I emptied her lunch box, her lunch box and I put dog food in there instead that day. To this day, I owe her an amends. That's one of many I have not found her to do, you know. But there were just many things like that, that though it would hurt me as long as I could impress other people to any length to make them happy or to make them like me, I would do it. And then when I began to drink in high school, um, in college, um, my behavior became justified. People liked the way I acted when I was in my first years of drinking. And it was like acting like a clown. And it, and it was not having to do much as far as I was concerned to get their approval. So I kept going on and on with it. And um, and I thought it was just what you did because my mother acted that way when she was drinking. Her personality would change after just a few of them and off to the races. And you didn't have to stop at any certain time. It was just whenever you would pass out or somebody would tell you it's time to go to bed or that was the end of the night. It wasn't my own decision ever, ever since the first time I drank. And... Um, I just remember growing up and feeling like there was only one person in the room who was allowed to feel, and that was my grandmother, and when she was absent, that was my mother. So saying how I felt was never a qualifier. I wouldn't dare do it most times. 
Um, I began to learn as a young kid how to read nonverbals quite a bit, too. I could tell when somebody was disengaged in what I'm saying because their arms and their legs would be crossed. Um, I can even tell when I was a kid that I, I, could, I could realize when three people are standing in a group and two people's toes are facing each other, the third person whose toes are facing away, they're the one I can approach. They're the one who is not part of that circle or discussion, and I can come to them and stand with them and feel okay. Hypersensitive nonverbal reading. I remember that as a kid. Um, so time goes on. Life goes on. I get married. I start a job. The job is going to require that eventually I become owner someday, so that's a stressor, and it's a very high-risk business. And um, I have a child. And my mother wants to get close to my child. She wants to spend time with my child, and I don't like that very much at all. She's out of control. I am out of control at the same time, but it's much easier to focus on her being out of control. And so I get really, really scared, and I get really crazy. And my husband is at a loss. And it gets to the point when I don't know what kind of mood he's going to be in when he comes home, because many days... When I get home from work, the ritual is that I go in the basement, I numb off, I come back up, and he doesn't know what kind of wife he's going to come home to. Um, And I get tired of that. I wonder, what is wrong with him? I want to change him. I want to change my mom. And I bring this to the people who I'm running a business with. Going back about 10 years earlier, I start this business, and I start working for a couple who are both double winners. They've both been in AA, and they've both been in Al-Anon for a very long time. And so they watch me. They watch me spin down my spiral. They watch me hold on to my job and run their business to a T while everything else in my life is spinning out of control, and I'm losing everything except for my business, except for my work, because that's my source. Your job is a lot of times for an alcoholic the last thing they lose because it's their source. It's selfish, but it's true. So I remember one day one of our key salesmen left, and I thought it was all because of me, because I was pushing him too hard, and it was very destructive. He destroyed our relationships with a lot of our clients. And one of the business owner partners of mine um, put a little something at my desk, and it was a copy of the Al-Anon Works book, and it was the Keep Things Simple excerpt. And it was so much what I needed because she could tell I was thinking about so many things at one time. I was paralyzing. I was paralyzing. And I decided that I was ready for Al-Anon. I said, I don't know what to do. Over the years, I'd ask them questions. How do you know you're reaching your bottom? And they would say, well, everybody's is different. And I would say, is this a religious thing? And they'd say, no, this is spirituality. It's different. And they suggested I got to an al meeting, and I think it's because they knew I was so full of ego and I was so thick-skulled, it was an easier, softer way for them to suggest me into the program. So I went to my first al meeting, and then I went to about five more, as they suggested. And during that time... I remember hearing about how these people were being treated. Now, mind you, I went in there to fix everybody else, of course, but I thought, why are they so happy and they're laughing and they've got this down and they're talking about all these solutions and 
But then they're talking about how they felt and how controlling they were and, and how the, the alcoholic affected them. And I thought, I am treating the people in my life this way. And that's when I knew I had a problem. So I went into AA. And um, I remember I, I, I would have a couple beers. I would go to a couple meetings during a week. And this little old lady came across the room. I think she had had enough of my couple of drinks. And she said, honey, just pick a date. And I did. And, um, and then I picked a temporary sponsor. And this is going back to uh, May 27, 2010. And she's been a wonderful temporary sponsor ever since. <laughs> and uh, so I got physically sober. And I, and I got straight to step work. And I knew I needed to find a sponsor as soon as I could and that I was going to be making a decision that I'm going to meetings for the rest of my life. I have no idea what I'm going to learn in these meetings, but I know that's what's going to happen. So um, I got sober for a couple years, and then I got stuck. And then I got scared again. Because what had happened was I had sobered up physically, and I had gotten distance on the chances of me picking up a drink again. But then I was looking in the face all those underlying problems, all those underlying feelings the fears came right back up. And I thought, this is a whole new round of something, and I have no idea what it's about. But I knew I wasn't happy. I knew I could be happier. And I knew I had some more work to do. So I decided for myself that the best birthday present I could give myself was on December 26, 2012. I made it back into the Al-Anon rooms. I just wanted to get happier. I remembered over and over, my business partners would say, AA makes me sober, but Al-Anon gets me happy. And that's the part I knew I was ready for. I knew I deserved it. I wanted more confidence. Um, I could tell the struggles of just not wanting to get intimate with anybody. I, I didn't want anybody to know who I am because, my goodness, what if you found out? And... Um, I, I was having a hard time with sponsees in AA at the time. I, I felt like I was keeping them sober, and I was really tempted to call them when they wouldn't call me, and, and, and I was going to carry them. And employees, I couldn't figure out what was my business and what wasn't. And I just knew I needed help. I needed, I needed somebody to help me with the outlines of the coloring book, you know? And... Um, that was one of the best things I've ever done. So I have a sponsor in both programs. Um, I call each sponsor many times a week. I go to both programs for meetings during the week. And I work step work for myself separately in both programs. I know that some people in the program feel as though they're doing step work when they're working step work with their sponsees but I feel like I need to work my own step work separately. Um, I am there to listen to my sponsees, but I need to do my work on myself, and I'm not going to learn enough vicariously by just working with them. And I want to learn about myself. I want to get more confidence. I want to get more happiness. And it's primary, primarily from Al-Anon, and I know that my Al-Anon experiences and way of being comfortable in my own skin is what people want to get sober for as well. And, um, and the confidence to share my skeletons in the closet um, 
it just gets stronger all the time. So I want to talk a little bit, too, about the kinds of, of relationships I have. Um, because getting physically sober is great, but then there's people. And then there's nothing but relationships. And those are nothing but the triggers for me. Um, my former husband, we did, we did end up getting divorced. When I got sober, our divorce was already activated. But I have to say that the program is what has truly salvaged my relationship with him. We love each other still. We say that to each other. But we know that it's different than what it used to be. And uh, we both have a son together um, that we are always holding right in front of ourselves and doing what's best for him, regardless of any animosity, disagreement, not seeing eye to eye. When you hold a child in front of you and you make decisions for their best interest, there's only one decision. And that's what makes it easy for us. My family, the dynamics there are that my parents are very young. I am 10 years older than my half-siblings down, and they are as much as 20 years younger than I am still. And they've all just kind of moved out of the house rather recently, so the whole empty nest has just begun for my parents. And so it's going to get interesting, and I know this. It's not going to stay the same. It's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse. And that was a big driver behind my getting into Al-Anon and continuing to want to stay. Because I want to be available. I'm not going to change anybody, but if they're ready to change, I want to be available. And um, I know that those who have lived in the house of where I grew up longer than I did are likely more emotionally damaged than I was when I moved out when I was 18 and I never moved back again. Um, With my employees, I have a much better idea of what is my business and what is not. I have, uh, there are seven of us, and I run this business now solely, but I do still have coffee with my program mentors and former business owners. Um, but I have a much better hold on, most of us are in recovery, which is a big blessing because we all think alike and that helps out a lot. We're also great workers because we're now obsessing about work and not about our addictions. Um, and we do the next right thing. We, and we work honestly, and we keep things simple. And we realize when one of us is thinking too difficult about something, and we say, let's keep this simple. Um, and I realize that unless their business splashes into our business, it's none of my business. And that's one of the greatest things I've learned. There are some who we are saving a seat for. There's a couple of our employees, um, and they know we're here. And that's a good safety net for them to know. Um, my clients, you know, I had a situation a while back, a few weeks back, where we made a mistake. Um, trying to remember what the mistake was. Oh, it was just a communication mistake. Yeah, of course it is. And uh, and this client was really trying to run my office manager through the ringer to make her feel really bad about messing up a proposal process. And my office assistant, being in the program, she said, That was my fault. I made this mistake. Here's how we can make do with it. And the client just wouldn't hear of it. And and I knew that she had taken care of this already. She had proposed alternatives that would resuscitate it. But this client wanted to talk to the owner. 
So I got on the phone and I said, you know, I do believe my office manager has already presented to you a very good solution, but boy, did she want me to grovel. She wanted me to ask for forgiveness. And there is just a limit to that. When it gets to be unhealthy, I only have to say that I'm sorry one time, and then that's that. And it works in that arena, too. We are human and we make mistakes, is exactly what I told her. Um, and so where do we go from here? Um, with friends, I recently in the last day here have dealt with a friend who I have found out is jealous of me. And I know why it made me feel so uncomfortable. It dawned on me earlier today. It's because when my mother would be jealous of me in my relationship with her mother, I would be punished for it. And that's why I get so uncomfortable when people are jealous with me. Um, this is a little daily discovery. I had to share that with you. Um, but the underlying thing that I have to be most aware of is abandonment. If I sense approaching a relationship that I have a chance of being abandoned, I will probably not approach. I'm terrified of it. And that goes with my upbringing, you know. I had a parent who did not want to be a part of my life for some unknown reason. And, um, and I'm confident that Al-Anon is going to educate me with the courage of how to approach that on a case-by-case basis. And I just need to be aware of it. And I need to be able to put myself at risk, that I might feel like I'm at risk at times, and go for it and feel confident to do so. Um, Abandonment is a real biggie for me. Um, When the clients that we lost because a salesperson left, I relived all that abandonment. Before Al-Anon, when an employee would leave, I would think I was the cause. I was the reason for their abandonment. I would find ways to relive it over and over. And it was... It was not happy, but it was comfortable. It's what I knew. And so Al-Anon has definitely helped me with great strides of letting that go. And it's a character defect. It's one of my main fear drivers. I'm not going to be rid of it, but I can make it subdued over time. So it's a real big opportunity to be able to share with you my perspectives on both programs. Um, It's important that when I'm in an Al-Anon meeting or when I'm in an AA meeting, I am just those members at that time. And it's important for the people who are new as well. Um, so, Jim, I do thank you for the invitation to share in both programs to dilute each other a little bit today. And that's all I've got. Thanks for your ears. Hi, everybody. My name is Chris. I am an alcoholic and a dual member. I guess that's redundant. I'm in both programs. (laughs) Um, It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Colleen, for your share. And uh, I got got some stuff out of that. Made me sit over there thinking. I even took a note or two. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate you all showing up here today. And I will try to time this so I don't blabber, blather on and on. But, you know, this uh, topic of this... uh, of our uh, workshop today is uh, working both programs. 
And I guess I should qualify just a hair. I want to talk about, uh, well, first of all, on or about May 31st, 1987, I did I had my last drink. That's going to come in later so you can kind of make some sense of this. But uh, I was told then when I come out of the treatment center, well, actually before I went to treatment center, while I was in the treatment center, they were saying things like, uh, you know, this, you maybe ought to go to AA or something. You might even want to try Al-Anon from what we've heard. <laughs> and I said, no, I don't think I want to do any of those things. You got anything else? And they said, uh, well, it's for people who want it, not need it, which was going to come back to haunt me later. And so uh, as a preamble to that, uh, alcoholism is a family disease. I go back into great-grandfather on dad's side who would go on a toot. Now, we were polite families. Great-grandpa was on a toot. Now, I didn't know great-grandpa. When I met great-grandfather, he was on his deathbed. But there were still legends about him going on a toot. And when he went on a toot, that just meant you didn't talk to him or bother him for one to two weeks. He would be back. <laughs> so he raised a son. His son was my grandfather. He was the uh, what I would consider to be our, our uh, family functional alcoholic. He was able to hold down a job and drink uh, steadily and be also hold down the town drunk job. And then they had my father. And my father was uh one of, I was saying this morning was one of, was able to have the beer truck drive up to our house in the summertime when he was going on vacation and drop off I was thinking about that earlier. He could they would drop off ten cases of beer because if you bought nine you got one free. <laughs> and he was going to be on vacation for almost two solid weeks. So um I most likely in this so it's a family disease, right? So somewhere in there they're passing on this information and I'm gathering it. Uh, mom's, my grandfather on mother's side, uh, I gotta love him, so he was my favorite grandfather. He was, uh, d- uh, divorced twice and married three times by 1952. And I was, I was gonna follow in his footsteps. <laughs> so anyway, that's some of the history of this. Um, you know, when, when I was coming to the program, to the, to the AA side of the program, you know, it was suggested I go to a meeting. Uh, my sponsor in AA suggested I go to Al-Anon. And, uh, of course, you know, it was just a suggestion. And so uh, I think I went once, and I didn't like it. And while I was there, I heard the phrase, go to six meetings. At the end of six meetings, you can uh, you make up your mind if you want to go or stay or not. So I did that. I went to six meetings. <clears throat> it took 18 years, but I went to all six of them. <laughs> And, uh, or as my now Al-Anon sponsor says, that was three ex-wives ago. <laughs> I was married to, uh, two admitted alcoholics that did join the program and one that just drank a lot of vodka at the end. <laughs> so, let's see, come along from there. Uh, so, uh, before I really, really joined Al-Anon after looking for 18 years, I was at a speaker meeting. And uh, I was talking to a gentleman, and he was. We were talking about the twelve steps. Aren't these the same twelve steps? I mean, twelve steps AA, twelve steps Al-Anon. What's it? No. What's the big deal? I didn't. I worked at twelve steps of AA. And he said, uh, "You know what? It's for people who want it, not need it." <laughs> I said, "I heard that once, twenty-four years ago. I think I like that." So I started going down on me with a different attitude and a different outlook on life. Um. Currently today, I am sponsored uh, by a, an Al-Anon sponsor who just happens to be my AA sponsor, so that's a little peculiar. But if you're look, if you're coming to Al-Anon and AA, 
you, I, you, I needed a sponsor in both programs. Um, you know, as the, so, and as a sponsor, as being sponsored, I've also now been fortunate enough to work with two men in the program that are now on. One is a dual member, and one is uh, strictly Al-Anon only. And uh, that's one of, the, one of my uh, highlights of the week when I get to work with other people. Um, and I'm sponsored. I was sponsored through the Pathways to Recovery. We went through all those uh, questions at the end of the book, to, uh, steps, traditions, concepts. Uh, we got to four-step, and I'm special, my sponsor says, so... Excuse me. I'm special, so I get to do the blueprint for progress. <laughs> and we did the blueprint for spro- for progress one week at a time. So it took roughly 26 to 28 weeks to go through the blueprint for progress, and I'm grateful for every minute of it. It was really what just what the doctor ordered. I, mean, I was I was fine in my AA program, but I had some Al-Anon issues or uh, living issues, and um, and out coming to Al-Anon, I started listening to what they had to say, and I was starting to fill in the gaps in my AA program. And for that, I'm grateful to Al-Anon. Let's see here. I'm going to get some tools in the program here in a minute. I, got, I have a home group on Sunday mornings in Al-Anon, and they are. It's a How It Works, How Al-Anon Works book. Um, I joined, seriously joined Al-Anon sometime in October of 2011, and it... The way we study the Al-Anon book, we study the first half of how it works. We leave the stories out. And it takes uh, just a, just about four years to go through that book, because the way we do it. I wouldn't do it any other way. We might do a, we typically don't do less than one paragraph a Sunday, but uh, sometimes we'll do two or three. You can, miss our, you can miss our meeting for a month and be almost on the same page. But it's wonderful because we're not in a big hurry. There's the topics are always tremendous. They're always just where you need to be. There's no, I, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. There's a, this is a program that uh, is, you know, a day at a time. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm just coming back. Um, oh, is there any differences between drunks or alcoholics and Al-Anon? There are some, there are some differences. Um, for instance, an alcoholic would say, uh, I have to drink like that. You don't understand. I have to drink like that. And besides, I'm not hurting anybody anyway. Alanon says, why do you have to drink like that? Can't you see who you're hurting? <laughs> so there's a subtle difference there that you don't know, I don't always catch. That uh, we do look at the, the two different sides. Look at the thing. Look at this alcoholism as a family disease in two different ways, two totally different ways. It's nice to find common ground because we have plenty. Um, like I said before, one of the one of the uh, the biggest thing of the of the uh, Al-Anon program, of course, was that besides working the pathways to recovery, was the blueprint for progress, and it was in there that. Uh, and going to meetings that I found some of the Al-Anon tools that I found to be the most useful. And my favorite, as people that know me, is the three A's, aware, accept, and uh, action. Because I was typically an aware, action kind of person. I mean, I knew acceptance was there, and I would nod to it, but I would never accept it. I would just be aware of it and then take the, uh, the quickest action that I could find. 
And so it was a real relief to be able to just sit around and just be aware for a while. I can't sit on my laurels for long. I'm going to have to eventually take action. But to be able to just sit back, take a breath, and be aware of my surroundings, what's going on, where, where am I at with my program, where am I at with my spirituality, and it makes a big difference. I also like the three C's, can't control, cure, or cause it. We also have what I found, what I, for a long time I thought it was in hope for today. Well, it is in hope for today on February 29th, so we don't read it very often. Uh, but it's also in the ODAT book in a different, different, slightly different format, and it's algebra. We have algebra in Al-Anon. And I love that. And uh, algebra is A plus B equals C. I mean, people from another planet will know what that is. It's a, it's a common language. We can't get it wrong. A plus B equals C. So, Alanon says if I'm A and you're B, and B doesn't have to do a darn thing, but A is me, and I can work this program, find the serenity prayer, and change the things that I can, and I will change. And the C is the resulting relationship, total sum of the relationship, so the relationship will change whether B does or not. Amazing that I had a choice in my own attitude, which is what that really meant to me. So uh, as being a person in Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous, I really can't leave my AA at the door. I just can't do it. I mean, but I can, out of respect for the people in Al-Anon, not bring it up, mention it, throw it in their face. Uh, I've been sober a long time. I really know everything there is to know about the program, and uh, which is false. But, you know, I don't do that. You know, one of the biggest compliments I got was not that long ago, somebody came up to me and said, I had no idea you were in Alcoholics Anonymous. I just thought you were in Al-Anon. And I took that as a supreme compliment because that's what I, that was my desired goal, was to be a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and to come in and be the best Al-Anon I could possibly become. What I can do, though, when I come to Al-Anon, is embrace all the Al-Anon principles there are and reap the rewards, which is typically my serenity. I'm about to finish up here with uh, on the ODAT book, page 129 talks about the, I'm just going to read it, talks about the gift of Al-Anon, I'm sorry, the gifts of Al-Anon are not without a price tag. Freedom from despair, is paid for the price of full, is the price we pay for full acceptance. So I surrender to God's guidance and the price of that is to surrender my own self-will. And that's the price I gotta pay. Um, alcoholism, I just mentioned earlier, is a family disease. A while back, I, look, I always like to look up words that I use and think I know what they mean. And they're usually simple words. This one was family. Uh, at the time, I was talking about alcoholism, the family disease. I looked up alcoholism, but I think we're aware of that. But family, I thought, was interesting. It actually... Now, I can't... Uh, what I really am is a... Uh, Sober member of AA and Al-Anon, and I have a smartphone. And I know how to Google. <laughs> so that means I look this up on Google through dictionary.com. Whether it's correct or not, I don't know. But in uh, family was not even a word until 600 years ago. Uh, between 1350 and 1400, the word became uh, from Middle English, and it was called family. I'm assuming prior to that, we were probably members of tribes or clans or us or them, <laughs> but we weren't, we weren't families. 
And it was actually anybody in a household. It could be your slaves. It could be your, it could be anybody resulting in, that resides in your household. We have since refined that with Wikipedia to define aunts, uncles, moms, dads, grandparents. That's family as we know it today. That's all well and good if you want to just know some useless information. But then I come across this definition of family, and this was the one that blowed my socks off. The family is the principal institution for the socialization of children. So if you've got a great-grandfather and a grandfather and a dad that like to drink, and another grandpa that likes to get married and get divorced, um, sometimes your socialization is acceptable, and sometimes the socialization is unacceptable. And that's, that's really hit home to me, because I always wondered, family, how can, how can alcoholism skip one generation if the guy ain't drinking? You know, he didn't drink. How come? It's affecting us. That's why it's affecting us. I didn't know that the family's, uh, um, the main, main reason for a family is for the socialization of children. And we can see, I, now it's evident all, everywhere I look at today. Another word I looked up was disease, which is, uh, very interesting. Uh, basically, it's a, uh, it's used to more broadly to refer to any condition that causes pain, dysfunction, dislikes, or social problems, or death. That's a disease. Uh, for those in contact, now this is for an Al-Anon. If you're an Al-Anon, this would be where you want to pay attention because you don't maybe have the, al- the drinking alcoholic disease. But for those in, in contact with the person afflicted, the disease usually affects the people not only physically but also emotionally as contracting and having with and having a disease can alter one's perspective and, its, and personality. I think I'm guilty of that as well. There is. Being, in, being raised with a family disease of alcoholism, it will affect the socialization. It also, will, it also affected my perspective and my personality. And so I look, and what does, what does Al-Anon tell us to do? It tells me that my perspective is probably not correct. I need to look again. And it also tells me, I can't do that. I don't know how. I've already done it. So I've got to have help. I've got to have a sponsor. I've got to have a home group. I have to have uh, somebody that sponsoring people helps a lot. But I have to go outside myself because of myself I don't have the answer. If I think I have the answer, I'm in big trouble. So the program tells me that my attitude is my choice, which is a novel idea. I think that was one of our topics and that how, how Al-Anon works. So that's just a novel idea and just have in charge of my own attitude. Um, I was under the impression that my attitude was given to me at birth and it never changes. And I have found through coming to Al-Anon that the, the choice is there. It's, as, it's clear as a bell. If I don't like how it's going today, I can do something about it. I can put myself in that algebraic equation and be the A and start to change. I can, there's, I got, there's so many tools in Al-Anon. You do have more books on the AA side. <laughs> haven't read them all. <laughs> haven't purchased them all. But, uh, your, uh, courage, it's our, your, your, our courage to change book and our ODAT book are some of my favorites. Uh, I know they're the old favorites, the old, the old ones, but, um, you know, I get a lot of information out of those alone. Um, the other ones I will get to. I've been, like I said, I've been in the program now uh, on five years and, uh, I have to say that 
my life has changed to a degree that I am more comfortable and more satisfied than I was prior to coming to Al-Anon, and that was after 24 years in Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're in Alcoholics Anonymous and are thinking about going to Al-Anon, I highly recommend it. For my, me speaking for myself only, it filled in a lot of the gaps that I didn't know were there. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Colleen. Uh, yeah, when I said earlier about uh, the fact that uh, things were changing in my life in 1980, in November of 1980, a friend of mine, I was seven years sober, this guy was seven years sober, and we were sitting outside a retreat that we had just been in, and we were talking about how the people in there were lying about their lives because they said they were happy. And we were miserable. And you know, the, the, this guy and myself were both raised in alcoholic home by alcoholic fathers, by abusive alcoholic fathers, and we never dealt with that, neither of us. And we didn't even, I didn't even know what that was a problem. I just knew I was angry. And I thought, well, this sobriety sucks. Uh, I didn't really want to go back out drinking. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Uh, my friend went out and started smoking dope. <laughs> I didn't want to do that. He, he disappeared for quite a few years from the program. Eventually he came back, but he never was the same. I came to Al-Anon not because I thought I had a problem, but because I was a therapist. And uh, it was recommended in one of the workshops, if you're working with alcoholics, and that was half my caseload, you ought to go to Al-Anon because it would help you. So I came to Al-Anon to help all you people, <laughs> because I know you needed help. And I can remember the first meetings I went to. Now, when I came in in 1980, there were, there were no men, period. In any of the groups I was in, it was all women, they were all married, and they were all married to alcoholics. And, you know, they'd look at me, they'd discuss whatever they were discussing, and they'd look at me and say, what do you think about that, Jim? So Jim would wax eloquently about something he didn't know anything about. In in uh, December of that year, I wound up in, in St. Louis at the Bush Library, which happened to be an adult children meeting, adult children of alcoholics, but there was an Allen on me, it was back in Allen, before ACOA ever started. And once I took two meetings, and that's all it took, and I realized this is the problem I have. I don't know what else is going on in my life, but this is the problem I have. And I realized that the reason I was so angry is because I was acting the same as an adult with seven years of sobriety as I was as a 12- and 13-year-old child in an alcoholic home. At 12 years of age, I was the only person in my home that was earning any money. At 13, I was the only one that had a job. Now, we got welfare checks once a month, and that's and because both my parents are alcoholic. We got welfare checks once a month, and i got to tell you, that did not last very long. By the end of the following week, it was gone, and we were, we were back. My sister and I were back going to the grocery store and the butcher and begging for groceries and meat and all that stuff. But I, but I was working, and, and in my mind, you know, as a 12-year-old, in fact, my mother had talked to me, and now this is not what you usually do with a 12-year-old. My mother had talked to me because she wanted to make a decision about putting us in an orphanage. And she didn't talk to her husband. She didn't talk to her parents. She talked to her 12-year-old son. And her 12-year-old son said, nope, not a good idea. <laughs> I'll go to work and I'll support us all. <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell you, at 12, you don't earn a lot of money carrying groceries, carrying laundry. 
uh, what else did I, shining shoes and all the other things I used to do and be out late at night and doing those kind of things. But in my mind, I was doing it. And, and in those seven years I was sober, I was doing exactly the same thing. I was going to school. I had a job. I, I mean, I, I was raising a family that was, uh, I had gotten married after I got sober. And this woman had children. I was taking care of them. I had my own children. We take care of her all the time. It was just, just a miserable existence. And I didn't know it. I thought I was doing the right thing, and, and I, I was. I was not drinking. I was, you know, I had a sponsor, and I had I was sponsoring people. And I thought there was just something wrong. And as I say, you know, if I hadn't been just for, you know, uh, God's intervention or whatever you want to call it, God's trickery, to get me to an al meeting because of the way I went, finally got through, um and to realize that this was the problem that was that was really affecting my life. And if I really wanted to stay sober, I was going to have to deal with this problem. And the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, is very clear on that. You know, it, it tells you you can go on out. You should go to outside help if you need it. In fact, Bill Wilson in the 50s started writing about a thing called emotional sobriety. And that was something I was not going to be able to do unless I went somewhere to get some therapy, or something to take care of my problem. Al-Anon has been, for me, therapy that only goes used to cost me a dollar a meeting. Now it costs two. <laughs> but that's pretty cheap compared to what therapy really costs. I did go to see a psychiatrist one time because he was a friend of mine, and I work, was working with him, and he, he diagnosed me as having PTSD, and, he, and the only thing he had for me was Xanax, uh, and and I, I, I obviously don't want to take that. He tried the thing called, um, I don't remember what it was, but then he tried something else and it didn't work. And so it, it's, I have to live with what I have. That's that's the bottom line. But I live with it because I go to Al-Anon and it's okay. You know, I still have rages just well up inside of me, but I haven't thrown a hammer through a TV or, or broken a window, or, or wrecked a car, or did any of those stupid things, and and since since I, I a little after I got sober, and I'm so grateful, and I, and I because of this program, um, I don't have to do that. Alcoholics Anonymous keeps me sober, and Al-Anon keeps me sane, and I'm so grateful for that. Now I thank you for all being here, and thank you, and thank you, and the mic just went out. It said it's time to finish. <laughs>